Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. In this episode, we shall hear Sonia Chansur, marketing consultant and mother to three boys, tell the story of the birth of her first son. Sonia's fallopian tubes are blocked as she therefore undergoes IVF in a bid to conceive. After four rounds, she is finally pregnant, but the challenge to meet her baby is not over yet. Her pregnancy is marred by several episodes of placental abruption and an enduring concern that her baby will be born prematurely. But against the odds, Sonia successfully carries her baby to term and is in the end, ironically, induced to start labour. Sonia's birth does not go to plan. Being an emergency C-section, it is very remote from the natural birth she had wished and prepared so carefully for. But waiting in the wings to receive her is her family and extended South Asian community, who she credits for helping her recover physically and emotionally from birth. In this episode, Sonia generously share how South Asian traditions prescribe rest and nourishment in the first 42 days of motherhood, and why it really is true that it takes a village to raise a child. With us in the studio is Nairi Wright, midwife and founder of Sage Fan, to answer any questions. My name is Caroline Johansson, and you're listening to the podcast To Become a Mother. Welcome, Sonia, and welcome, Nairi. Sonia, you are a mom to three boys, six years, three years, and 20 months. And today it's the birth of Roshan, your eldest six years, who we will hear about. To start off with, it would be lovely if you could take us back to the time when you and your husband were thinking about having a baby and uh, yeah, the process at the time that you went through. Yeah, sure. So I think we began thinking about, oh, we should really think about having children now. 2012 it was we were going late to Barbados and I was like okay I'll just come off the pill then come for the pill so we did that but it just took a bit longer than we thought and then it got to about January the following year 2013 and uh, nothing was happening so we thought, let's just go to the doctors and just see what's 
what do we need to do? And I think you don't really think about the whole pregnancy process since you did GCSE reproduction at school, you know, like, you know, when you first did mm. that sort of thing, God, you need to say, is it right? You know, kind of thing, no, what's happening? What's the process? And, and I remember going to that appointment and just lying and said, oh, we've been trying for over a year, but nothing's quite happening. And, um, but that then instigated a referral to a gynecologist and everything and, and some investigations. And it turned out, so towards the end of that year, 2013, after initial appointment actually where the gynecologist asked me about my history any abdominal insertions or any issues when you're younger and I went uh yeah actually I had my appendix out when I was uh 11 years old and she said okay that could explain a lot and I said oh why is that and she said well you could have some scar tissue build up over the years over your over your reproductive organs well, okay, this is a bit weird, you know, I just didn't expect to hear any of that. And then she referred me straight away to for radiography and to have, I can't remember what the process is called now, Nari, uh, when you have your, your tubes tested with the water that goes in them. I think it's called, it. well, a hysteroscopy is an examination of them. Um, and then sometimes they flush through it, fluid through as well. Yeah. So I had, I had that process done. And um, anyway, so that showed instantly, and it was such a painful procedure because the fluid just wasn't going anywhere. I think it balloons your fallopian tubes, basically. And so what that clearly showed was that, yeah, my tubes were well and truly kind of like just not working. And um, I was producing eggs every month, but they weren't coming down the fallopian tube. So they were getting stuck somewhere. And that was due to the scar tissue buildup over over my fallopian tubes. So that instantly took us down the IVF route. So mm. we were referred quite quickly. I'd say by the January, after that November first radiography scan, in the January, I got my funding through. So we were lucky enough to be in, a, in, a, in an area because IVF is a postcode lottery where they offered me two rounds of IVF. So two fresh cycles and at a really brilliant clinic, the Nuffield Clinic in Surrey, in Woking. And then that's when our IVF journey began I guess from I think that April 2013 where it kind of started it started off so that was our process of getting to the, the birth of our first son Russian and um yeah and it was just I did two cycles back to back so I think one in the June and then again in the November and it didn't work it was such a tough time because you you know you think oh god no if I can't get very naturally apparently IVF can work and you have all these kind of like I think the first thing oh yes it will work but then you read up on it and the statistics are you know the chance of it working not working should you do a fresh cycle should you do a frozen cycle you know you get you go down this rabbit hole of assisted conception and it's also very easy to get sucked into oh do we need this additional treatment do we need to do this treatment do we need these drugs do I need a a million different vitamins Mm. every morning every night to Mm. kind of get there but our clinic was really kind of holistic in the way that they were very much, my consultant was really good at going, let's just focus on this process and mm-hmm. this period you're in, and then we'll think about the next stages. And the midwives there were absolutely brilliant. So there were midwives who'd worked, you know, in the NHS and um, but now gone over to the private clinic and they were so loving and so caring. And you'd have the same nurse all the way throughout your process, which was really lovely. So see from beginning to end. And the way they deal with you when you're going through or it hasn't worked or your, your scans or how your scans are going. So then I did two, two back-to-back cycles and I was exhausted, mm. you know, mentally, physically, emotionally. Did you have anyone who supported you, who you could turn to in this process? Yeah, my parents were really good. Yeah. My sister was very good. My husband, I mean, I think 
it can this process can make you or break you and I think mm. it made us and we always look back at that time as something that really made us and friends actually it took me a long time to open up to friends because two of my friends had babies and then my other best friend was also trying at the same time and she got referred to IVF at the same time So yeah, so it was kind of like coincidence and it was funny. And we would, as two best friends going through the IVF process and she was in Kingston and I was in Surrey. So we were both quite close to each other anyway. You know, it was dinner dates were always about babies and trying Mm. to have babies and the issues. And if one of us had a bad day, we'd call each other up and we had a good day and we'd try and support each other. But it's such a hard, it's such a hard process. Mm. So I think having your girlfriends around was really important. And then having your, your family support just feeling accepted and feeling like this is fine. Mm. And my parents have a very good faith and they're real believers and they're real, just trust it, just trust the process. If it's not meant to be, it's not meant to be. And it's very hard though, when you're trying to conceive a child thinking, but it's not just about trusting the process. And I want to have this baby now. I want to be pregnant because all my friends are pregnant and I'm getting old Mm. and I need to, you know, all these thoughts what society tells you, what your culture tells you, what the media tells you comes into your head. Um, And it's very hard to come out of that Mm. um, and to have faith. People ask you questions a lot, don't they? When are you planning to start a family? And Yeah. And and I was getting, we were getting that a lot because we'd been married for like, you know, six years, whatever. And, but it just wasn't on our agenda before then. We were just a young couple buying a house and traveling and all that stuff. So, you know, it wasn't really, it wasn't important and then it suddenly became really important. And then you become obsessed by getting pregnant. Yeah. And then I took it, then my husband forced me to take a break after my November cycle. And then by that time, you'd been, it'd been a year and a half yeah. since you started. Yeah, that's right. So then we, and then I took a break. I went on a yoga retreat. I tried away on my own, tried mm-hmm. to get myself back together. We got you know, another referral, just a double check. Everything, you know, was okay. You know, mm-hmm. And again, you get, go down this rabbit hole of let's spend a bit more money and let's just let's get double checked let's make sure we get another bit of advice and so we did that and it was the same advice our consultant had given us and you know so but we had that reassurance that no it's it's just you know we've got to wait we then we did a third cycle and that failed again and then I quickly went on to a fourth cycle and it worked so it was like brilliant and at that point they'd put in two eggs at that point because I had a few eggs left. so that, And actually, I was very lucky in the fact that I had produced like 13 eggs, of which six went on to be fertilized and frozen. Okay. So I had a real good bank of really healthy eggs, yeah. you know, um, that I could dip into. So at that cycle, the last two cycles, three and four, they put two in. Yeah. They're just like, let's just see what happens. And the third cycle didn't work. Fourth cycle finally worked. And, and then I went for my first scan. And there were two heartbeats. Um, um, and then, but by week 10, there was just one heartbeat. So I lost one at that point. So it went from being not pregnant to being pregnant with twins to mm. then suddenly being pregnant with just one. So that mm. was quite hard to get by. But then Russia and Yaid lasted till full term, which was, which was brilliant. So, mm. I mean, at the end of it, that, those four cycles, we had a really healthy baby. It must have been so hard going through all of that and then getting the message that you have to you and mm. then losing. Yeah, and I think, you know, every every cycle you go through is like a miscarriage because you yeah. end up losing yeah. one or two eggs. At this point, I had 
two heartbeats and you see two heartbeats on the screen and that's kind of the, yeah. the hard thing. You actually physically see it, see it there and then you go back the next time there's just one heartbeat. You just, yeah. oh, you know. And what was hard was that then every scan up until about 24 weeks I was having because I was beat because of what happened during the pregnancy, the embryo sac that was still there and it was just waiting for my body to absorb it. So the fetus had gone, my body had absorbed, absorbed that, but the sac was still always there mm. on the screen uh, when I used to go for my scans. Yeah. Did you have some bleeding? Yes, yeah. I did. So then at 19 weeks and 20 weeks, I had two very big, big bleeds and they talked about it being um, like my placenta had, they think might have detached itself a little bit and it had caused a, a mild bleed, a quite a big bleed, sorry, on the, the 19 weeks one. Up until 19 weeks, I was absolutely fine. I was doing my running, my yoga mm. and swimming and, you know, a, mm. a really healthy pregnancy, took very good care of myself. And I got to say, like, you know, when you th- when I think back to where my IVF journey started and has taken me, mm. I changed the narrative about what it's done to me. I would say it hasn't broken me. Mm. It's made me healthier. It's made me very conscious about what I was putting into my body. Mm. It made me fitter. You know, suddenly I was swimming, running more. I was uh, during the, the process, more time for yoga, more time for meditation. I went inwards, you know, mm. um, and I think it's changed my perspective, how I want to live my life, you know. So in that sense, it's done a really good, been a beneficial process for me to go through. And it makes you think about, you know, your husband and your relationship and, mm. you know, your family around you and everything. So I'd say that, you know, in that sense, the IVF has been my story mm. and it's been a positive story because actually I've continued those healthy habits and those ways of living. Mm. So I had a great pregnancy up until 19 weeks when I had this big bleed. And just going back to after you lost a, the second baby, were you worried as a result of losing your, your second baby, the yeah. one that was alive? How did you cope with that? I think our whole pregnancy journey was so unpredictable mm. that we never took anything for granted. Yeah. So as much as hope we had, we also had the fear and the, you know, and my husband would take exceptional care of me and make sure I was okay. And, you know, so we were very careful and just took it easy. Mm. I wouldn't say I was bouncing around, yeah. um, you know, full of beans thinking, oh, this is amazing because yeah. you still had that doubt in you that what else could go wrong yeah. until you've got that baby in your arms, isn't yeah. it? I didn't even want a baby shower. My sister forced me to have a baby shower. I didn't want to celebrate. I didn't want to have a moment where I go, oh, great, I'm pregnant. Look at me. Woo woo. I just wanted to go into the motherhood yeah. quietly and safely. Yeah. I wasn't up for the whole, you know, we did have a baby shower in the end and it was lovely. And I'm, you know, and, and my, and my unit of friends and family, my mother-in-law, my mother, my nan around me, you know, I had a lot of support around me, mm. but I, yeah, I still didn't feel like I just, I had to celebrate. It was almost like a not tenth fate. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then you got to, did you say 19 weeks and mm. you have a, a bleed? Yes. Yeah, so funny enough, I was reading this book about these myths about pregnancies that you should and shouldn't believe. Things like you should drink, um, how much caffeine you should drink, what the kind of NHS tells you, but actually what it does to your body. Should you be on bed rest, not be on bed rest, all this kind of thing. And I had just finished reading a chapter on what do you do when your waters break? And I'd put the book down and I'd fallen asleep. And then about 12 o'clock, I woke up feeling a little bit wet. And I thought, oh no, my waters are broken. And I was like, oh gosh, as so I got up, mm. put the light on. 
And I looked down and my bed was just covered in blood. Mm. And it wasn't a small bit of blood. It was quite, it's like someone had thrown a cup of water onto my bed sheets. And I got my husband up. I said, you call the ambulance. I'm bleeding. Yeah. And I carried on bleeding as I sat on the loo and the ambulance came, went into the hospital. Um, but by, by the time I got there, I started clotting. So I'm guessing it sorted itself out. And Yes. Yeah. yeah. Just, Your clotting factors would have just stopped the blood from... Yeah. Flowing. Yeah. Flowing, yeah. So I started to clot, which I think that it was a good thing that I stopped bleeding. Mm. And then they kept me in for a few days. And then I left and was just kind of put on bed rest. So I didn't go mm. back to work. So I kind of signed off work for a bit, for about two weeks. And they that say was a, what it what they thought it was. So they thought it was some kind of eruption. Yeah. I feel like I've never had an answer for what had happened to my body inside. Mm. I had several scans that's the following morning and then before I left, but I never found, they could see like a small kind of tear on my placenta. Um, and then by about two weeks, it had repaired itself. So it's amazing what your body can do yeah, yeah. and kind of, you know, inside. But I think that was another setback for us. And I think that that trauma of um, going through that process and having that, seeing that bleed, and it's weird because and I had a similar bleed at 21 weeks, but it's always the first bleed, that first one mm. that sticks with me. I think that was the one that really hit me. Yeah. The second bleed, I sat like the same process, woke up, feeling yeah. wet. And what was harder about that one, and so funny actually, my husband was in the country, he was in Dubai. And I was on my own, I was with my sister. She came to stay with me the weekend just to look after me while he was away. And, and so she had to deal with me call the ambulance, you know, sort my bedding out afterwards, go to hospital with me, hold my hand there. And uh, when I got there, because it was my second big bleed, they gave me the steroid injection. For the baby's lungs, is that right, Nairi? Yes. You give that to... Um, it basically encourages the babies to produce a substance called surfactant in their lungs that just helped them to expand because they were obviously anticipating a very early delivery but obviously at 21 weeks, it would have been difficult for the baby to survive. But they kind of hope that by helping with the lungs and keeping the pregnancy going week by week, mm. they can get to a point where the baby can survive. Yeah. And they were scared that night about the baby coming early. So my husband was in Dubai. My sister was on the phone to him. And so he was quickly get, trying to get a flight back uh, to the UK just in case. But in that process, they whizzed me up to, I think, St. Charlotte's in London, where they've got a really good neonatal ward yeah. and facilities. They're like, just in case you do have the baby, we'll take you up. Or we need to take the baby out. We mm. can take you up there. So then I got transferred from my local hospital up into London. That in itself, being on your own, even though I had my sister with her with mm. me, it was, I felt so lonely without your partner with mm. you and not being there. And you think, God, I'm going to have this baby now without my partner and yeah. my baby's in full term yet. Yeah. And actually, Russian stayed in till full term. Um, I took it very easy at work and he was a healthy born baby. Mm. So I think, you know, the IVF and then I had the bleeds. It just felt like I was just going to go. I was just like, oh God, no, what's going to happen next? Yeah, next time. The, what's going to happen next? Yeah. And, you know, and then there were things, I remember the consultant saying, you know, oh, this is really common. These bleeds are common mm. with um, assisted conceptions. And I don't know how true that is. They are more common, yes. They're more def common. Definitely. But um, they're still... There's still low risk, you know, it, it's not a, a big thing. I think that you were incredibly unlucky to have it happen twice. And just generally, even without IVF, how common are bleeds in pregnancy like that? 
And I guess for what should you do if you have one? It totally depends on when. Mm. I'd say they're pretty common in very early pregnancy. So particularly because women are finding out that they're pregnant as early as three or four weeks now with, you know, the really accurate pregnancy tests, it's probably about one in four pregnancies will actually end in miscarriage. um, And most of those involve bleeding at some point. Mm. But then the further on you go into pregnancy, the less likely they are. But um, it's one of the reasons why at the 20-week scan, they look at the location of the placenta. So if your placenta is low-lying, you are far more likely to have a bleed. Abruptions, which was possibly the cause um, in Sonia's case, are associated with IVF conception. Also things like smoking, recreational drugs. Some women are just incredibly unlucky. You know, very often there are no explanations given to the things that happen to us. And that's really hard to come to terms with. So placental abruption can just happen once, can happen suddenly. It's often a reason why babies are delivered earlier. Mm -hmm. So had Sonia been 36 weeks pregnant or more, I suspect they would have immediately just delivered the baby. But I think because she was only halfway through and Roshan wouldn't have survived at 21 weeks. They mm. they just kept you on bed rest instead. And But um, it's, it, it's definitely really hard to deal with emotionally mm. as well as physically. Yeah, and any, I think, like I said, and any amount of blood during pregnancy is just, it's quite scary, yeah. isn't it? Because you're told that actually when you're pregnant, you don't have any periods, you're not going to see blood ever again, but mm. actually you do and you do have spotting and that is normal. Mm. And I think it's about also having those conversations quite frankly and say, actually, you do actually believe when you're pregnant because, and, and actually most of the time nothing to fear. Yeah. Um, but I think we just fear blood, don't we? As yeah, a, absolutely. as humans, you just fear blood yeah. and you think of, think of the worst. And then uh, I got to, yeah, about, about my 40 weeks. <laughs> and then I went into natural kind of labor with some more bleeding, but that calmed down and I kept me going. And then I stopped contracting and then I was put in for a, um, an induction. Um, so just going back to that point. So you, you go into labor naturally. How, just contractions. Just is very, that 40 weeks? Yes. yes. Yeah. Okay. It was due to be born on the 2nd of May. I think yeah. on the 1st of May, I started contracting slightly home, but a bit funny. And then I had another bleed. I was like, oh God, here we go again. And so I went to hospital, stopped bleeding, the contraction stopped and everything. And I was feeling fine again. Yeah. But then it was the fear, like, I think exactly what you're saying here, of the baby coming or happening to the, something happened to the baby. So they then took me in for an induction. But the induction took ages to work and that, did, that didn't help the situation. And then they put me on to the, I think the, the final protocol for the induction, which is the, the, the drip. Yes, the drip. And then I, that was at around nine o'clock and I kept going. And actually, you know, the whole, you know, apart, I think the, the, the bit that frustrated me was just the constant monitoring. Mm. And I feel like my, my approach to motherhood that I wanted. So I did the hypnobirthing. I did lots of mm. pregnancy yoga. I did take it easy and, you know, I did fully get into my pregnancy emotionally, physically, spiritually, you know, totally believed in my pregnancy that faith that my parents had always had came back to me when I was pregnant. Mm. I'd lost it. And then I kind of kept that faith going and I, I reinstilled that into my pregnancy. 
had most positive thoughts. I stopped reading the news, stopped watching the news, you know, stopped reading thriller books, you know, mm. I stopped reading negative things. So I was looking for a very positive birth. Yeah. I did the, I did the hypnobirthing. So even though I was being monitored constantly, I kind of kept that hypnobirthing theory in my head and I used the breathing to get me through the, the induction process and actually enjoyed that bit, you know, if mm. I wasn't monitored, you know, but apart from that, I enjoyed contracting. I enjoyed, you know, and I didn't need any pain relief. I had a, a TENS machine to help with the pain yeah. and I thought I was going fine. And then all of a sudden, Russian's heartbeat drops mm. and the buttons pump, you know, the lights go off and all of a sudden it's like, okay, we need to rush you in for emergency section. And, uh, one of the girls who I was had NCT with, she had just given birth to her baby girl and was being stitched up. And she said to me, she was being stitched up and they heard the alarm go. And she was like, everyone got really scared. And the midwives had to leave her room. And she was left with one person stitching her up because there's been an emergency. I was like, that was me. <laughs> that was me going through an emergency. And I think that was a scary moment because it was, I don't know how many people were around me that at that mm. moment, but there was nurses all around me there was a consultant in the room and this is where I'm so thankful for the NHS because the military operation that went on mm. in that five minutes to get me sorted and get me into an operation operating theatre to get the baby out was it was just I mean to me it looked like they knew exactly what they're doing how they were mm. doing it got them onto the table then I had to get the epidural in to to uh to then start performing the C emergency c-section what thoughts were going through your head I to at that point, I totally gave in to the medical profession. Mm. I didn't think twice about anything. I didn't the the birth plan that I had in my head, the you know what I want to do, the pipno birthing all went out the window, and it was literally giving my body over mm. to these professionals to get the baby out, and that's all that mattered in my mind then. Mm. And I just gave in. Yeah, and Nairi, when that happens and the heart rate drops like that, how? quickly do you need to get someone to the operating theatre? Really quickly. So if it's a bradycardia where the baby's heartbeat drops and doesn't pick up at all, mm. they really ideally need to get that baby born within seven minutes. So when Sonia talks about it being almost like a military operation, mm. it absolutely is. Mm. And everybody who is involved in maternity care has every year to do something called a skills and drills where they practice those skills. And so it's so that people aren't stopping and thinking. It's just like breathing. Mm. They perform their tasks. They all know exactly what they're doing. They work as a team. It really is coordinated and choreographed. And I think that everybody knows that the person at the centre of it, Sonia, is terrified Mm. But they don't really have time to stop and think about that so much. Mm. They just know what they have to do. And that emergency buzzer initiates a whole spiral of events, a whole stormtrooper coming mm. into the room. And that's why everybody left your poor friend to be <laughs> sutured by one person, which, by the way, is absolutely fine. But um, it is utterly terrifying it when was. it happens yeah. to you. Yeah, and you just... And it, part of it's still a blur, I'd say. I can yeah. remember that part happening. I can remember then being in the on the table. I can't remember the bit in between, mm. you know. And then Russian being born, and I've been absolutely fine. Yeah, doing that first scream, you know, that holding contrast. him. Yeah, absolutely, just holding that baby, mm. and you're just kind of like, 
my God, what just happened? And you talk about seven minutes. I never knew that, but that makes complete sense to me. Because I remember at quarter past, at 3.15, I went in. By 3.20, he was born. Literally yeah. looking at the clock, I was like, oh my God, yeah, that's it. <gasps> you know, he's he's here. And within five minutes, he was in my arms. Yeah. Does he like drama, your little boy? <laughs> um, I would say he's probably <laughs> the dramatic one out of the three, definitely. It's so funny because we talk about, you know, like, you know, how in pregnancy and then how in real life they are. Yeah. But that is him. Yeah. He is dramatic and he is kind of like, da-da, here I am kind of thing. You've you know? got a sense of that, haven't you? <laughs> um, so, yeah, maybe it's after his mum a bit as well, but yeah. Did they ever say what was the reason for the sudden drop? No, but I did something called birth reflections um, yeah. at Chertsey Hospital, which was uh, really helpful because I found it very hard to deal with all of that. So I went for birth reflections. It was only one session, so I wish there was more sessions like that available mm-hmm. on the NHS to, I don't know, be able to open up your heart and your mind and to understand why it happened and mm-hmm. how it happened. So the birth reflections is a program and it might be a bit more now, but this was six years ago where I got to talk to a midwife openly about my experience. And she mentioned about going through inductions, how inductions increase the heart rate of the baby. Mm. And then it's like quite, it's too much for them. I mm. don't know. And then can be for some babies. Yes. Yes. That could be a reason why then his heart rate just suddenly dropped. Cause I guess for nearly six hours, it's quite an intense moment being inducted yeah. for a child to come, yeah. you know, your body's pushing them through. and Is that a hormone or stimulation? Absolutely. That's... The artificial hormones will definitely stress some babies. And I'm wondering if in Sonia's case, the placenta potentially had partially detached, which meant that Roshan was even more vulnerable to that. So if you've got a very oh. strong contraction <laughs> with a placenta that's beginning to separate, it probably just meant eventually he'd had enough yeah yeah so um, again I think that was the right time to take him out I think I'm so glad I did take him out at that time because it must have been exhaust I mean I was exhausted Mm -hmm. for a baby six hours of that plus he's enjoyed or whatever else he enjoyed while he was in me you know I definitely time bring to make his way into the world so you appears you have there is the c-section he comes out. Did they put him on your chest straight away? They did, yes. Yeah. And I was wheeled. Oh, and then at that point, it was it felt normal when I compared to my second, to my last two births. Yeah. Got wheeled out and held him and tried to feed him, and but I was exhausted and stuff. And yeah. but yeah, he was just very content, and you know, and he was just a quiet little baby. It was, yeah. you know, it was perfect. It was, it was that moment that I'd envisioned for so long for so long and it was that you know we were really happy and we hadn't found out the sex of the baby so that was even more exciting so we didn't even know it was a boy um didn't have a name or anything so you know that sense that was that was the magical bit that we got to really experience but (laughs) here we go again another drama so I continued to bleed quite a lot the next from about 3am till about 10 o'clock, I know. And they kept checking on me constantly to make sure I was okay. And they just couldn't see that the blood was clotting. Um, So I just kept bleeding and they just couldn't feel around what was happening. So they said, look, we're going to have to take you in, do a little examination, but there could be something, there could be a bit of placenta left inside or something. We don't know quite know what it is. Mm. So they, they took me in, put me under general anaesthetic. So this is at 10 o'clock at 10.30 in the morning. And it so happened that I had a blood vessel that had burst and was still bleeding in, internally. Mm-hmm. And that caused me to lose four litres of blood at that point. So I went back in, I left my baby 
um, my husband. Um, I hadn't managed to feed him at that point either, like properly mm-hmm. feed him, tried to latch him on. But obviously your first breastfeeding experience is just, I mean, you don't really know what you're doing. No. And the midwife's <laughs> trying to help you, but you don't quite get it. And the yeah. baby doesn't quite get it. And so you're just, you know, so that was stressing me out anyway. Then I had to be wheeled in to have this procedure performed to sort this bleeding blood vessel out. I came out and I think that was, I felt like I'd been in a car crash at that point. Yeah. I felt like I had really battled through something because I I was not with it. Mm. My parents were there, my sister was there, my in-laws were there, looking at the baby and everything. I had a really nice, that again, that magical moment of everyone meeting, mm. rushing for the first time. I was not with it. I was not kind of like even awake. I was recovering from a general anaesthetic mm. that put me completely to sleep. And that had a major impact on my feeding. And I just couldn't get the milk out. I couldn't feed in the colostrum. And the nurses were so good at trying to use the little pipettes to try and get the colostrum and to feed Russian. Because at that point he was screaming because he was so hungry. But that was almost like, oh, here we go again. I was back in again Mm. because of bleeding. And then that sort of settled down itself. And how long time did it take to recover from the operation? I guess that mixed in with the C-section was... it. So I had a C-section. Then I went in and had another... Yeah. incision or try to sort me back I think that I think that had to reopen me actually the c-section scar and go back in and sort out the the yeah. bleeding and blood vessel and so yeah I mean six was it six weeks eight weeks mm. you need to kind of recover from a major operation mm. this was like almost like two operations in one day yeah did it take a long time before you were able to go home from hospital no I'd, I'd say five days five days so I wouldn't say it was you know too long and you probably needed it. I needed mm. it, definitely needed it. And I definitely needed the support of the midwives when it came to feeding because mm. I was determined to feed. And the infant feeding team at Chertsey and St. Peter's are absolutely brilliant. They mm. are, honestly, they persevered with me. They helped me physically, emotionally. They really made supported me and my husband in the feeding, gave us all the tips. When they would sit next to me. And even when I was discharged, I'd go back and spend an hour or so with them, sitting with them. If I had any issues, I could call them. And there was really support with my husband as well, what he could do at that time. And again, so I didn't realise the impact that the loss of blood has on your feeding, mm. on your on your milk supply. Because I had a C-section and after a C-section, and Nari might tell us as well, but your milk tends to come in later yes, after you have a C-section. And, and why is... Do we know why that is? There seems to be like a lot of smoke and mirrors around feeding after C-section. It's completely possible to breastfeed after a C-section, but you do need more support because in the beginning, it's difficult to get into the position that you need to. Anemia or blood loss absolutely affects milk production, but I would also say shock. Mm. And this was not a planned C-section and Sonia had many elements of trauma throughout the pregnancy and during the birth process. So all of that would have definitely affected the hormone production. And I think the reason why with a C-section the milk comes in typically 24 hours later is because when you give birth vaginally, um, all of the hormones um, that are released help to get the milk to come in. During the actual birth process. Yes, during the birth process. So They're just delayed. So it's completely possible to breastfeed with a C-section, but it is more difficult. Mm. Yeah. And I learned a lot about that. So I trained to be a uh, breastfeeding peer supporter during my last maternity leave because I'm so passionate about breastfeeding. So I, and I wanted to put almost like the the science behind the knowledge and the practice that I had gained. So I trained to be a, a peer supporter. 
and help more women who are in that situation and kind of break down those myths, like you said, the smokes and mirrors, you know, actually mm. there is a reason why all these things happen. Mm. And as I did my my training, I kind of learned why C-sections, why bl- loss of blood. Emma Pickett, who's a really a well-known a lactating consultant, yeah. she explained it to me. I did an interview with her and she explained it to me as well, why it can be delayed and what the loss of blood means. And I would say still six years on, you still had that trauma, the breastfeeding, you know, call it yeah. breastfeeding trauma yeah. of why it didn't work. And it's almost as if like, that was my second part of my journey. I wasn't, didn't quite get off to the start that I needed to get on up to because my body just couldn't do it at that time because it mm. was exhausting mm. and I was tired and, you know, but on the other side of that, which I know we're coming on to later, but I got a lot of support from my husband and I was staying with my in-laws, my in-laws at that point because our house had been renovated. So I didn't have to get back to life as quickly as, as I needed to, you know, I was being fed, watered and looked after really well. So I could concentrate on trying on to feed Russian and concentrate. And I remember my husband saying, you just look after the baby and I will look after you. And that's what I needed. Mm. And he, I'd say he nursed me back to health and well-being because he did literally just look after me just to make sure I could feed and I could look after myself as well. Mm. But yeah, that um, knowledge that I gained from being a peer supporter has really helped me come to terms with how the breastfeeding journey works. And it also then supported me my second and my third breastfeeding journey. Yeah. And it's been an evolution because you're always learning because every baby is different. So you're just always learning something new. Yeah. Um, I Before I had my son, I didn't really think much about breastfeeding. It was almost like an afterthought. You know, I thought about my birth and then the breastfeeding came along and it was such a shock and I wish I'd prepared a little bit more because as you say it's quite a challenge to take that on straight after you've been through such a massive event that a birth is Uh, so I completely understand how you felt and the fact that you were calling it a breastfeeding trauma I can also understand but you did say before that your family was waiting for you and they waited to meet Russian and you are, your family is from South Asia and you have a specific culture around how to nourish a mother who's just given birth back to, back to life or back to health. And it would be lovely if you could describe a little bit about those traditions and, and how it went about in your case with your yeah. family. And it's something actually I've researched after my pregnancy as well, because I found that it wasn't just in the South Asian community. It's in the Latin America community. It's in the East Asian community as well. And it's all about putting the mother and the baby central to those first 40 days, 42 days, six weeks Mm. are crucial for your recovery as a mother and your passage into motherhood. And it's about giving you time with the baby. And so in our community, it's all about kind of like the mum. So my mum, my mother-in-law, my nan played a big active role in, and my auntie, you know, in making you nourishing food. You're given a lot of warming food, so nuts and seeds and jaggery to kind of like warm the body up inside. So you're kind of told to avoid anything cold, you know, salads and cold soups and things like that. So you want to have some nourishing food, broths um, to really help nourish you from the inside out. And using particular herbs and um, seeds and nuts and the Ayurvedic way to repair your body inside out, about building up your immune system mm. and building your digestive system back up as well. And is someone else cooking all of this for you? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So as I said, I said with my with my in-laws, my mother-in-law, my husband did lots of cooking and making sure, you know, and I really craved meat afterwards. So mm. like having like 
the iron was definitely something I ate a lot of after having having Russian. And then you're made this, it's like a granola kind of type mixture, very dry, but it's made of like nuts and seeds and ghee and jaggery. So really good, healthy things. Mm. But you're having a couple of spoonfuls of that in the morning with your tea or at night time. It kind of helps build up your energy levels and about increasing, like using fenugreek, for example, seeds and curries to increase your milk supply. And these are all ingredients and ways of nurturing mother's baby that have been around for like over 5,000 years or since we've been giving birth, mm. you know. And I remember like always when I was at those tough moments, I'd always channel my gran or my nan. I think, God, they've done this six times over. I can do this. I can channel my ancestors. I can channel those women who have been there before me. And I think that really used to drive mm. me. I think if they can do this in a field with no healthcare, no midwives around them, yeah. I can do this. Yeah. And I think that always drove me. But it's that community sense, yeah. you know, of being wrapped up by the women you're in your community, in your family, and not just the physical support, but emotional support. So, you know, always on the phone to my sister or to my mum and just crying my eyes out. And I think a lot of that was dealing with the trauma of what had just gone on mm. for on the last, you know, couple of weeks. Like, hang on a minute, I have this baby, it's wonderful. But all this other stuff happened to me to get to here. And I kind of, that took me a long time to deal with. And also the transition of becoming a mom is such a huge thing. And it makes some, what you're describing makes so much sense to me that there is a focus on the mom and not just the baby. You know, I feel sometimes in Western culture, and I'm hugely generalizing here, but you know, people come after you've given birth and they want to see the baby and they hold the baby, but having someone actually care for you and see you as a mom and what you've gone through it's like a battlefield sometimes it can feel like that you're emerging from and yeah having someone caring for you like that I think sounds so wonderful and that it's a you know it's not just five days it's 42 days yes. of actually getting that that care yeah um, and it continues beyond that but that's meant to be that's meant to be seen I remember being in my 20s thinking oh god I would never stay in the house for 20 for 42 days that's so boring in your 20s you think that what what you know, what an awful way to leave after you had a baby. But actually, when you have your child, and I remember my, my dad explained to me, well, actually, but, you know, in India, you would stay in the house because you don't want to pick up any diseases. You don't want your child to get poorly. It could be very hot outside. Mm. So, of course, you want to stay inside. Mm. And I think, well, why would you do that in, in England then? But mm. actually... It's a great, it's a it's a great ethos to have mm. that you're just focused on you. It's not about the outside world anymore. And like I said, this happens in the Latin American culture, in the Indian culture. The Hindus have special prayers. They say at seven months, so they almost have like a, almost like a baby shower. Mm. And it's all about the prayers are about the mother's mental well being, yeah, and making sure that she's in the right state of mind. Because I really believe that actually what the mother's thinking and feeling gets passed to the baby, and that's not far from the truth. And that's a religion that's over five thousand years old. So there is some truth in these yeah. cultures and these traditions and these the way they approach motherhood. And all of it is about that transition, mm. that rite of passage, mm. that you're now being going down this passage of becoming a mother. And it's an ongoing learning curve and knowledge building and and every child is different, every yeah. bread's different. Yeah. Thank you very much, Sonia. It's been such a beautiful story. Really fascinating to hear about your tradition and also beautiful to hear about Russian getting born in such a dramatic way <laughs> <laughs> dramatic definitely yeah absolutely <laughs> really lovely thank you oh, thank you for listening thank you so much
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.